Our text this morning comes from Matthew chapter 10. We'll be looking at the last few verses of the chapter in verses 34 through 42. It can be found on page 815 in the Bibles in the pews. Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 42. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Let us together ask the Lord for his help as we seek to understand and apply his word. Father God, we've, we've come to the end of this passage in scripture in some ways, a, a very difficult passage for us to both understand and also to apply. But God, we thank you that you, by your spirit, guide us into all truth. And so we ask that your spirit would lead us and would guide us and would instruct us. May my words be true. May we hear uh, with faithfulness and with eagerness to live as your disciples. And we pray, pray this in Christ's name. Amen. There is a story fact or fiction, not really sure, of an old English man outside of London. Every morning, this man would wake up, board the train, and beg on a particular street corner in central London. He followed this routine each and every day for just about 20 years. Not surprisingly, his house, which he left every day, was disgustingly dirty. It had a stench. The neighbors hated it. When they could no longer stand it, they called the police to do something about the man, or the smell, or the house altogether. Upon entering and starting to clean the house, the police discovered that there were small bags of money spread throughout the entire house. Apparently, that particular street corner where this man could be found provided him with more than adequate resources. The man was actually found to be a millionaire. There was no need for him to keep boarding that train for central London day in and day out. He had all that he needed. And so the police then waited for the man to return home to share their findings. They told him, stop begging, because he did not need the money anymore. The man didn't respond, but simply returned into his home, locked the door behind him. Probably not a bad idea, considering now everyone knows he has lots of money. And that was it. The next morning... He woke up, boarded the train, and sat on that same street corner like he had done every day before. Now this story, I will admit, sounds kind of like a fable. But if it were real, I can only imagine the outrage that it would have warranted. Some of you may even be feeling that right now. But however, one thing we can say without a doubt is that this man was committed. Nothing could shake him from his post 
on that street corner in central London. Money ultimately did not matter. His allegiance was to that street corner in central London. Disciples of Jesus Christ should share, should express a similar commitment. Our allegiance to Jesus Christ should mimic that man's allegiance to that street corner. Nothing, not success, nor failure, nor rejection, nor trouble should replace our allegiance, our loyalty to Jesus Christ. We're wrapping up our brief look at the traits of a disciple from Matthew chapter 10, where Jesus is instructing his disciples as he's getting ready to send them out to do the work he has called them. We began by looking at a disciple is called to be Christ-like, to follow in the steps of our master and our teacher. And then we looked at how we are called as disciples to be confident, because Christ has given us all the assurance we could ever need. And today it concludes with a call for disciples of Jesus Christ to be committed. As disciples called and sent by Jesus Christ, make him your primary allegiance. Make Jesus Christ your primary allegiance. Now Jesus has already provided a little bit of a glimpse into what this allegiance or this commitment will entail. In verses 32 and 33, which we didn't read, He says, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. It means that confessing him, it means confessing him publicly, whatever the consequences. That's one aspect of what commitment of allegiance to Jesus Christ means. And in these last nine verses, Jesus gives us three more glimpses. They're not necessarily pretty. They're not necessarily desirable or altogether easy. They are, however, critical. And they should hopefully challenge us and also encourage us to seek to live out our lives as committed disciples of Jesus Christ. They're listed in your bulletin. There's a a slight tweak on the last point. But we will see that Christ will cause division. We will see that committed disciples can find that Christ will command devotion And the last point, we'll see that Christ will comfort his disciples. Christ will cause division, command devotion, and comfort disciples. And we begin by Christ will cause division. Allegiance to Christ will bring hostility, even from those who are closest to us. Jesus gets right to the point. Strife will come as a result of being faithful, committed disciples. And in fact, he he makes it very clear, this is why he came, to bring division. This is what he says in verse 34. Do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. The sword, obviously, is a weapon of war. It causes and is used for conflicts. The disciples would clearly have understood this. However, Jesus is not trying to get the disciples to picture a large sword like the sword from Lord of the Rings, if you will. No, the word Jesus uses is the word for a small sword, maybe 18 inches, no bigger, used for cutting. It is the same word that the author of Hebrews uses in Hebrews 4.12, when he says the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow. 
And just in case that didn't sink in, he goes one step further, for I have come to set man against his father. This verb to set against is is a lot more, there's a lot more to it than just our English translation suggests in set or set against. We could replace it with to incite for a better sense of the gravity of what Jesus came to bring. Simply put, Jesus is divisive. His earthly ministry proved as much. And the responses to him today by our culture, by some of our family members, by our friends, proves it. He incites people. Some of you know this all too well. Your faith in Christ, your obedience to his call has angered those around you. It has set them against you. It isn't anything you have done or said, but simply your commitment to Christ that pits you against them. While this is certainly heartbreaking, it is not surprising. Jesus came for this very purpose. He has come to fulfill what Jim read for us in Micah chapter 7, where there would be dissension, there would be division, there would be chaos. The coming of the king with his kingdom would bring great confusion as it clashed with the kingdoms of this earth. Now this does not negate Jesus as the prince of peace. He certainly is the prince of peace. He alone is the one through whom sinful rebels have peace with God. He alone is the one through whom sinful rebels have peace with one another. That is the message of passages such as Ephesians 2. But sinful man and his kingdom simply do not want this kind of peace. They reject it. They respond to it with hostility. Jesus here is doubling down on his words in verses 16 through 23. A committed disciple should expect a vision because that's what Jesus came to bring. And I fear too often myself, certainly included, we would rather not accept this reality. We would rather people just respond with relative indifference. We would rather keep the peace as we follow Jesus Christ. The truth is we can't. Jesus brings division. As Paul explains in 2 Corinthians 2.15, disciples of Jesus Christ, we have a smell. We have an aroma. He says, we are the aroma of Christ to God, to one a fragrance from death to death to another a fragrance of life to life this smell this being with Christ this being of Christ will cause division it will incite people against us it will offend them Jesus knows this and yet still calls us to continually faithfully follow him but what makes this even harder is that Jesus teaches that this division may be extremely personal He goes on to say, I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those from his own household. Again, this language flows directly out of Micah chapter 7. God warned Micah in that passage that prophets like him would experience hostility because they proclaim the message of God. Jesus is telling the disciples to expect the same thing even from their own households. It may be those closest to them, those most dearly loved, will be the most hostile and the most divisive. 
And Jesus gives us these relationships on purpose. They are some of the closest and the most cherished of human relationships. Father and son, mother and daughter, even daughter-in-law and mother-in-law are all intimate relationships. We may not think so in our current context, but if that seems to throw you off, think of the relationship between Ruth and Naomi, mother-in-law and daughter-in-law, intimate, close. Faithfulness to Christ will drive a wedge even between the most close-knit of families. It will cause those against Christ to revolt against his messengers. And again, this story is the story of many of our brothers and sisters around the world. They have been kicked out of their homes. They've been divorced by spouses. They've been abandoned, turned over to the authorities even, all because of this sword that Jesus brings. And this is a crushing reality. It hurts to think about. We don't want to think about it. And for some of you, this is all too real. Family dinners are now awkward because of past conversations, because of strife caused by this division that Christ brings. Individual relationships are strained because of the truth that you have been faithful to proclaim. Some of you have deep sorrow over the responses of certain friends to your allegiance to Jesus Christ. Those relationships simply are not the same. They simply are not what they once were. Know that Jesus Christ knows your sorrow. He knew this would be one of the costs of following him. And he sympathizes with you. He was called crazy by his own family members. But he also calls you and each and every one of us claiming to be his disciples to persevere. He calls us to endure even as we experience the strife and hostility. This is one of the ways we are called to faithfully follow him and commit to him. But we see that Jesus will not only cause this division, he will also command devotion. We see this in verses 37 through 39. Allegiance to Christ means cherishing him above everything and anything else. It doesn't matter if your family relationships are filled with hostility or harmony. It doesn't matter if your loved ones cherish you or chastise you. Jesus Christ is primary. He takes the top spot when it comes to your priorities, your affections, and everything else. There is no way to get around it. There's no way to wiggle ourselves out from under this call for absolute devotion. Jesus Christ takes precedence first over all relationships, even the most intimate. He says in verse 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now it has to be said, Jesus is not negating scripture's emphasis on the family. He is not calling disciples to cast aside the family altogether. Passages such as Ephesians 6 and 1 Timothy 5 confirm how believers are to love and nurture and care for their families. And sadly, there seems to be a growing trend in some circles, even in the church, to use these words of Jesus to somehow devalue the critical role of the family. Jesus is not seeking to negate family, but he's using them to, to stress just how devoted disciples must be to him. He must be supreme. He must be absolute. As one commentator states, devotion to the family is a cardinal Christian duty. But 
it must never become absolute to the extent that devotion to God is compromised. There is only one love that occupies the top spot in each and every disciple, and that is love for Jesus Christ. In fact, true love, love that is patient and kind, not envious, arrogant, that rejoices in truth, and all those other qualities that's listed in the familiar passage of 1 Corinthians 13, can only flow from a heart first devoted to and loving Jesus Christ. If you wish to be a more loving spouse, a friend, a parent, a sibling, start by loving Jesus Christ. A devoted disciple will then be devoted in all these other areas as well. Mix up the order, things start to crumble. I think we can all test to moments in our lives where we have mixed up the order and things have started to crumble. But scarier still is that if we mix up the order, Jesus says we run the risk of proving ourselves unworthy. He says, whoever loves father, mother more than me is not worthy of me. This idea of worthiness pertains to acceptance. Jesus is blunt. Those fully devoted to him are those he accepts. I don't wish to soften his words here. Now, for sure, assurance and justification are not being tossed aside. They remain intact. But it is good for us to, to swallow a little bit hard here. Maybe to squirm just a little bit in our seats as we hear Jesus say, If you love these more than me, you are not worthy of me. If our supreme love and devotion are not to Jesus Christ then we are not worthy of him. May these words challenge us, even rebuke us for our fleeting affections, for those times where we chase chase after plenty of other things, many of them good things, instead of chasing after Jesus Christ. May they drive us to repentance and a renewed desire to love Christ over and above all these other loves. And included in these loves is certainly the love of self. Jesus Christ must also take precedence over the love of self and self-interest. He says in verse 38 and 39, Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now if you've been in and around the church for any period of time, you've heard these words before. Many of you likely even have these memorized. May they not become so familiar that they lose their weightiness. All of these or portions of these words are found in every single one of the gospel accounts. They stress the importance that Jesus puts on these words. And actually they're the most frequently quoted words of Jesus in all of the New Testament. Because this is the picture of discipleship. It is the standard by which we are measured. A disciple sacrifices all, everything, for the sake of Jesus Christ. There is the sacrifice of ease and renown for pain and shame. The cross, even before Jesus goes to it, was a symbol of pain and shame. In that day, there was only one person, one group of people who carried their cross. It was those walking to their death. The fact that Jesus himself died on the cross would only add greater weight and gravity to this picture. 
But there's also the sacrifice of pursuing a life of self-interest, of seeking to find our life here and now, in this world. And this one is especially difficult, because just as it was back then, self-interest is almost a virtue in our culture. We are told that life is being found in life is found in being true to yourself. Life is being found in doing what's good, in doing what is best for you. Only when you commit to yourself will you find what you long for and what you desire. This message is a dangerous lie. And for those of you who are around my age and younger, that's 33 and under, this is the water that we've grown up in. This is the water that we drink. This is the water that we swim in. Your interest is the most important. Yourself is most important. Jesus is calling you to the exact opposite. A life sacrificing what you desire for what he desires. It is a life of service to him and to others. This means that being a devoted disciple of Jesus Christ will be hard. Because it is natural and easy for us to love ourselves. We are experts at it. Thanks to sin, it's what we've been doing from the day we took our first breath. But this also means that being a devoted disciple of Jesus Christ will not be glamorous. For many of the disciples, they were hated, they were rejected, some were even executed for the sake of Christ. Ease and fame are not what Jesus calls his disciples to, but rather it's daily to die to self and the vain pursuits that come with it. So where is your devotion? What is your greatest pursuit? If it is anything but Jesus Christ, it will lead to loss. Our world offers us a plethora of people and causes and things to devote our love, our time, and our energy to. But know for sure that only devotion to Jesus Christ will bring about the life we so desperately seek and the life that we so desperately crave. Yes, it will be hard, painfully so at any given, in time, at any given time. But in the end, we will find that following Jesus Christ is an endeavor worth sacrificing everything. Because this is the example that Jesus Christ set for us. There was no relationship more critical to him than the one with his heavenly father, the one who sent him. He loved his family. He loved his disciples. He loved his friends far better than we do. And yet they did not trump his devotion to his father. He literally took up his cross, followed the father's plan for his death as the sacrificial lamb. He lost his life only to take it up again as he confessed in John chapter 10. And it is because of this, because of what Jesus has done, that he then calls us to do the same. He calls us to be faithfully loyal, not in our own strength, but in the strength that he provides through his Holy Spirit. So we see that Christ, allegiance to Christ, will bring division. It will require devotion. But we also see that Christ here ends his words with comfort for his disciples. He closes his words in Matthew chapter 10 with encouragement for those who are committed to him. For those who live a life of faithful allegiance to Jesus Christ, he encourages them. And it's probably needed. I can imagine at this point 
the disciples have to be feeling fairly concerned, if not overall depressed. Jesus has just promised them hostility, threats, death, relational strife, all for the sake of him. It would not be a shock to find one or all of the disciples thinking, is this really worth it? As Jesus is wrapping up his words, am I ready for this? And in all honesty, you and I may be thinking this very same thing this morning. Are we ready for this? And whether or not the disciples felt this way, Jesus knew. And maybe he saw the looks on their faces, and this is why he closed his his words with this. But he tells first that the disciples will be received as representatives of Jesus Christ. This is their encouragement. He says, whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Now in the days of the New Testament, it was common for important people to send representatives. These individuals would be welcomed and received as if the person who sent them was there in their presence. The centurion did this in Luke chapter 7. Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 does the same thing when he sends for Peter. Jesus is telling the disciples, you are going to be doing this for me. Just as Jesus represented the Father, he confessed it over and over again throughout his earthly ministry. He came to do the Father's bidding. And so he told people to reject the Son was to reject the one who sent him. To believe in the Son was to believe in the one who sent him. That honor, that encouragement now passes on to the disciples. They would represent Jesus. They would be the agents going out on his behalf. To reject the disciples was not simply to reject a man, it was to reject Jesus Christ himself. To receive the disciples was not just to receive a messenger in the name of the Lord, it was as if you were receiving the Lord himself. This encourages the disciples that your mission would not be in vain. They would go forth bearing the name of Jesus Christ, despite rejection, despite hostility and violence and even death. It didn't matter if they were met with success, with failure. They would be representing Jesus Christ. And Jesus affirms that they would be received. There would be homes that would open their doors. There would be those who welcomed them. The book of Acts is littered with examples of people opening their doors and welcoming messengers of Jesus Christ. Cornelius probably being one of the the greatest examples. But this idea of receiving is not simply opening doors. This language is also those who would, upon opening their doors, those who hear the message would also turn and believe. Jesus Christ is encouraging them that there will be those who will turn to Christ as a result of their bearing his representation. The disciples would experience joy and privilege of being the instruments through whom Christ would draw all kinds of people to himself. And I confess, I don't think this way often enough. Christ represented through me. But you and I, by faith in Jesus Christ, represent him to this dark world. The darkness may be in our families. It may be in our circle of friends. maybe in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces. But we are called to represent Christ. And may we do so with joy. May we do so with eager expectation that Christ is using us to call people to himself.
that there will be those who will receive Christ as a result of our faithfulness to him. But it's not just that we get to represent Christ that is encouraging to us. It's also that we are bringing a reward with us, a reward that is eternal. Jesus lists this in verses 41 through 42, and he closes by saying, because he is a disciple, if someone receives you because you belong to Jesus Christ, I truly say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Now, I admit this section does seem a little bit confusing. What does Jesus mean when he mentions a prophet, a righteous person, these little ones? There are some who think Jesus is signaling there's different classes within the kingdom. There's the disciples as the highest, then the prophets, then the righteous person, and finally the little ones. They're signaling different roles within the kingdom. All important and all, but not all equal. Some are spokesmen, some are just consistently faithful. I would argue that I think Jesus is just saying the same thing in three different ways. If you welcome a disciple because he is a disciple, there's a reward. If you welcome a prophet because he's a prophet, there's a reward. If you welcome a righteous person because he's righteous in Christ, there's a reward. Even if you welcome through the insignificant giving of a glass of water to any saint who walks in off the street, there's a reward. This, all this receiving, accepting, reflects genuine belief in Christ, his disciples and their message. And it brings an eternal reward. Jesus, I think, is foreshadowing what he's going to say in Matthew 25, where he lists all these things that he says, if you do this for the least of these, you've done it for me. Which, on the one hand, should encourage us to be hospitable, especially towards one another. We should be eager to support, encourage, and love one another, because this demonstrates our commitment to Christ as his disciples. And this is why we support missionaries, church planters, and others who labor out of love and commitment to Christ. But again, this idea of bringing a reward would have encouraged the disciples, and it should encourage us. In representing Christ, in proclaiming the gospel message, we are bringing a reward with us that is eternally secure for those who hear it and receive it and turn to Christ. And so for those of you who may be here this morning apart from Christ, I hope these words encourage you to turn and receive him. He brings, he promises a reward of salvation, of eternal life free from sin and death. It is the reward of living forever in his kingdom of peace and of righteousness. And he's made it clear in Matthew 10, there are only two responses to him. Receive him unto life or reject him unto death. May I plead with you to receive him unto life. Receive the reward that he promises. And for those of us who are united to Jesus Christ by faith, may these words encourage us to commit ourselves to faithfully proclaiming this message, to offer that promised reward that we have been so graciously given. We don't need a special status. The reward that Christ promises is the same, whether it comes from my lips or the lips of one of our youngest over there singing songs about Jesus. Let us be faithful in our call to proclaim it. We're going to close this morning by singing, Jesus, I, my cross have taken. It is a hymn confessing much of what Jesus has just preached through in Matthew chapter 10. It is our response to his call to be Christ-like, confident, and committed disciples. 
The first verse reads, Jesus, I my cross have taken, all to leave and follow thee. Destitute, despised, forsaken, thou from hence my alt shall be. Perish every fond ambition, all I've sought or hoped or known. Yet how rich is my condition. God and heaven are still my own. Is this truly what we desire? Is this where our pursuits as individuals, as in a church, lie? And are we bold enough to make it our confession? It's, it's straightforward. The call to follow Jesus Christ is a high calling. It is not easy. It contradicts everything in our sinful nature and everything that this world holds dear. But at the same time, the call to follow Christ is the only call worth committing to. Sacrificing our lives for the sake of Christ will never, never disappoint. Jesus has given us this promise. So as disciples called and sent by Jesus Christ, make him your primary allegiance. Let us pray. Father God, you have called us to commitment to you. You have called us to love and to faithful service. God, you have called us to sacrifice any and all things for the sake of your kingdom. Forgive us where we have failed as individuals, as a church. Forgive us where our affections have been running after other things, things that do not matter. But thank you that you are a God who is gracious and merciful. Thank you that you are a God who encourages us, who comforts us, who has given us the honor and the privilege of being your representatives here on earth. May we do so faithfully until the day you call us home or the day that Jesus returns in his glory. And we do pray, Jesus, that you would come quickly. Amen.